Please stand for the reading of the word. We're in the Gospel of Matthew first, and then we go to Paul's letter to Timothy. Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And then we go to Paul's letter to Timothy, the very last. Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're kind of in a mix where we're talking about God and his gracious giving, his generosity. And then we've begun to talk about our response to that. Uh, about two Sundays ago, we spoke of how God bestows upon us in the church as believers an enormous amount of blessing in Christ from Ephesians 1 what all God has given us. And it was basically the litany of all of the great salvation words that Paul puts into one ecstatic sentence there in chapter one of Ephesians. And then we spoke about how God gives the church gifts. First of all, gifted men who are ministers among us, and then several varied gifts of his spirit that's given to us to do the work of the ministry. And even before that, the Sunday of the Winter Grace, we had a sermon from Romans 12, which talks about us 
yielding up our bodies as living sacrifices. It was the liturgical language of the ancient sacrifices in Israel where we come to God bringing an offering and that offering is our very own lives. And it's not in order to earn any kind of the blessings that God has given us. God has given us all of those things before we ever have this response of gratitude to him. So having laid your life upon the altar for the Lord and having seen and understood what all he's done for you, let's talk about your money. I'm not kidding. That's exactly what that word says, is you cannot serve God and money. And actually, it's an Aramaic word, and we all remember the King James. It's mammon, and it means money and also your possessions. So if you think about what all you have some ownership claim upon that's yours, if you know how to figure net worth, take everything you outright own, take everything you outright owe and do a little difference there, you come up with a net worth. And everybody in this room has a net worth. Now, it may not be steep in cash. It may be an inheritance from the family. It may be many things that you enjoy. It may be talents. It may be things that you have by way of privileges and rights. It may be hopes and expectations. But there's a worthiness to each one of us. We can be reckoned kind of financially. We can put up a profit and loss statement on how we live our lives. We can get a balance sheet on what we have with respect to our ownership. But we are always reminded from Scripture of a couple of things. Number one is we don't really own it. God owns everything. The Bible says, Jesus, I mean, the Old Testament says in, in the book of Haggai, I think, uh, or Malachi, that the, no, it's Haggai. <laughs> the gold is the Lord's, the silver is the Lord's. I, that covers the precious metals, generally speaking. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In fact, the great wise man of the Old Testament, Job, says we come into this world with nothing and we leave with nothing. People talk about you can't take it with you. I remind you, you didn't bring it with you. We have, in effect, not an ownership, but a stewardship of everything that God has given us. And so Jesus dealt with that quite a bit. In fact, we've seen several teachings of Christ, and there's several that we didn't quite get to when we went through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the, when Jesus confronted people, often it was about their money and how they, what relationship they have to their possessions. And some have said, there's a sense in which if you've not really come to terms in your own heart with this in relationship to the Lord and his kingdom with respect to what you own, what you have a stewardship over and how you handle it, there's a sense in which the question is, how do you handle the Lord's money? If it all belongs to him, then you're a steward of what he has given so it's not your own. You're not even your own. You've been bought with a price. There, it's not a monetary price that we can calculate in the market, but it's an infinite price. That is the price of the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. So I wish we had a larger context where we could sort of settle down and lecture a few, a few times in a row 
inconsistency on Christian economics or biblical economics. You know, the Bible has a, a, a bedrock economic theory. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's not Marxism. And it, it deals with the beginnings, the ownership, the stewardship of the earth and every person in it and everything in it. And it starts in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the original producer. The earth is the original product. Adam and Eve are the original consumers. And you can work it out from there to see how God has established it. In fact, that's really what Jesus is doing here when he has this, this metaphor in the middle of this passage where he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if the eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if the eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. What, what he's saying here, right in the middle of this passage on money and on treasure, he's saying you've got to have a right view. The eye has to be good. It has to be focused and it has to be completely enveloping everything that is involved in your treasure. You've got to learn to see this thing from God's perspective. You've got to learn to see this thing from the perspective of heaven versus earth. You've got to learn to see this thing with respect from time versus eternity. And that's what the Lord is trying to do. He's trying to get us to get the right perspective or the right point of view or the right attitude toward our money, our individual possessions. And that's a very grave thing in the Christian life. You're not the kind of Christian you ought to be, and you will not be doing the good works that you were created for, Ephesians 2, if you're not handling your money in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And I'll tell you what the Lord expects you to do with your money. He expects you in your stewardship to make an exchange, a change of currency, to take the money you've got that are maybe in dollars, maybe tied up in land and means of production and stocks, equities, et cetera, et cetera, precious jewels, and you can just go down the long list of ways we can, we can encapsulate our wealth. He wants you to change that currency that coinage for treasures in heaven. Now, we're not real clear what those treasures in heaven are, but the Lord refers to them several times. He also refers to rewards. This is not something you do in order to build up a, a stock in heaven in order to be saved or not. It's not that you're putting your treasure in heaven so that you can be sure and go there and follow them there. All of that is reckoned by the finished work of Christ on the cross. We all know that well. We know the gospel well. This is the expectation that our loving Father who's given all for us expects out of us. And he expects it because it is his and it is to our eternal benefit to cash into his bank and into his currency to put it into eternity and not in time. Now, how do you do that? Well, you take your cash 
And after determining through biblical principles, and there's a lot of them, you have to study pretty carefully. We've been studying stewardship the last couple of weeks, and we'll study a couple of more weeks this month in um, stewardship principles. But once you get a handle on it and figure out what it is, you'll realize that you are to take your money and put it into the Lord's work. Now, the Lord's work is the work of redemption, salvation, restoration. So your money is to go into two or three places. It is to go, first of all, to feed the poor, the needy, the disabled, the oppressed. First of all, coupled with it, and not going along without it, is it's to be placed into the maintenance of the ministry of the Word of God. It's not only for the welfare of certain people, but it's also for the ministry of the Word, to keep the ministry of the Word alive. The only reason that money should ever be given to a minister is to free him from having to, let's say, clean pools or wash cars or throw papers. I don't think that's a good job anymore. There's not papers being thrown. Everybody's reading everything online. Uh, Whatever the job may be, free him from the responsibility of doing that stuff eight to five in order that he may have the time to study the word and devote himself to prayer in the work of the ministry. That's Paul's plea. And that's what we're to do. And in so doing, we send the word forth. Sometimes we have to sponsor people who take the word around the world in terms of missionaries and the work of the Lord and all of those things related to the, to the establishment and the maintenance of an authentic Christian ministry. Now that's where, it, that's where it, your money is to go. And the Lord gave a framework for his people back in the Old Testament. He gave them a bedrock framework and it was called the tithe. The tithe means a tenth part. And the Lord explained to them that if they would pull 10% of their increase and continue to take 10% of their increase and give it to the Lord, that the Lord's blessing would be upon them. And that was the basis. I've got a, a little lecture that I delivered in Sunday school class a few weeks ago about how that structure was basically given to the Levites and the Levites handled all the worship services They handled all the music. They handled all the teaching of the word. They were the teachers. They were also the educators. They were the ones that taught basic learning and basic science and and, and, uh, reading and math and all of the things that the youngsters needed to know. The Levites had to charge over that. The Levites were dispersed throughout the land so they could establish these various schools. And it was the Levites that were basically the civil servants. They took care of the poor and the needy and they administered that uh, for the people. They were also not only civil servants, not only teachers or educators, not only preachers and worship leaders and priests, but but they also were the judges in the land. They were the ones that held and organized the courts in the gate that established justice in the land. Another thing the Levites did was they they had uh, the the justice system set up, and I forgot this last thing they did. It'll come to me in a minute. When it does, I'll just blurt it out. Oh, they were the medicine men. They were the healers. 
They were the men that dispensed from the apothecary, the, the ointments and the oils and the, the various remedies for the people. You remember this passages in the book of Leviticus, you probably read it one time and didn't want to ever read it again about the Levites having to inspect leprosy and sores and deal with women in, in uh, childbearing and all that sort of thing. The Levites did all that. Do you think Israel got their money's worth? Paying a tenth to have a bureaucracy, a tribe out of the 12 tribes, and one tribe that did all of that. And even then, Israel shorted, failed, cheated, robbed God, did everything they could to wiggle out from under the burden they had to bring a tithe to the Lord. Now, I'm going to tell you that the tithe was elementary. It's part of the Old Testament legal system. It was, it was heavy. It was burdensome. It was the Old Testament legal system that was the tutor and the schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. All we learned out of tithing was a portion belongs to the Lord and it is disproportionate to those things that the Lord has provided for us. On a factor really of about 99 to 1, what the Lord has blessed us with. And, it, and it's considered a return to the Lord and a maintenance of those good things, health, prosperity, justice, righteousness, worship, education, those good things that God has for his people. There's also a hint in what the, the Levites did as to what the church ought to do. The church has abandoned. I'll just give you one example. If the church had maintained the welfare system, feeding the poor that the Bible prescribes in the Old Testament and had done it you know, in, in a, up to the times and had gotten the principles right, we wouldn't have the mess we have in this country with the taxation and the redistribution of a welfare system because there would not be a hungry mouth in America, especially in the household of faith. Commandments in the New Testament tell us our first obligation is to take care of the household of faith. In fact, that's what went on. You read the book of Acts, you don't even get through the first few chapters until you read the story about how they took care of each other financially so they could take care of, of the, the needs that the needy folks had. Next week, we're going to talk about the offering that Paul was, was collecting as he did his missionary travels that he was going to take back to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Two chapters in 2 Corinthians that are filled with principles and instruction on how to, who, to, to maintain that ministry to the poor and to the needy and to the saints, to those who are of the household of faith. Is this too much just yet? I got about another hour and a half worth, but I'm going to, I'm going to put it into about five minutes. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where bad things can happen to it. It can rust and rot away. Has any of everybody lost any money in the stock market? Do you ever put money in there, you know, 10 or 15 year buildup and then they have one of those 40% drops, you know? Do you remember 1987? Do you remember 2000? Do you remember 208? Do you remember any of those dates? I do. That's just thieves breaking through and stealing is what it is. They, they have taken it away. It disappears. It's meaningless. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys nor thieves do not break in and steal. This is an interesting principle. For where your treasure is, there your heart also will be. Notice the order. You put your treasure there and your heart follows. 
I think most of us kind of give it the other way around. If something touches our heart and makes us really feel like it's a good, then we give. And nothing wrong with that order, but the preferred order is you have a determination of where your treasure goes. And where your treasure goes there, your heart goes. And if your treasure is going to go to heaven, you're going to start thinking about heaven. If your treasure is going to leave this world, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. And that's what God expects us to do. And he also now gives us a couple of admonitions, and I'll just mention those and then look at the other passage. No one can serve two masters. What, where did that come from? All of a sudden, this notion that our, that our possessions own us. Our possessions enslave us. They, our possessions possess us. So the Lord now is knowing how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom has given a lot of special instruction for those who are rich. And by the way, if you take world standards, worldwide global standards, just about everybody in this room is in the top one or 2% of the wealthy people across the globe. That's just hard to imagine. And I know we live in a highly inflationary, a cash intensive economy and all of that sort of thing, but we're still in the 99th percentile of, of the wealthiest. Above that, it's just amazing. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Look at the extremes, the love and the hate, but notice the, the, the most is devoted to the one and despise the other. Now, that's true of any two masters uh, generalized across our experience, <laughs> you can't serve two masters, really. At least you, the best you can do is divide loyalties. But when it comes to what's spelled out here is God and money or God in possessions. You can't serve both. So the most important thing you'll do as a Christian with respect to your money is to decide where your heart is, to decide where God wants it to be, to decide what you're going to do. Not only was there a tithe system in the Old Testament, but the Lord granted them the freedom and they were under some obligation to participate in what was known a free will offering system. That is that they would bring above the tithe, the 10%, they would bring offerings to the Lord for various things, especially in projects that called for a large pool of money or things all at once. When they built the tabernacle, they did this. And again, in a greater way, when they built the temple, they brought their, their free will offerings far and above their tithe. And they also did it in time of national crisis. And they did it in time of revival, times when it was important to them to put spiritual things above material things. In fact, the biggest um, defense against materialism, and materialism is not just material, it's an ism, it's a system, it's a way of life, is giving. If you want to break the materialistic hold upon your heart, start some kind of giving. Giving to the poor, to the needy, to the work of the ministry, to the church, 
to the things that you know are near the heart of God. And once you've learned, and I speak from hard experience, I speak from learning it a little later than I should have in life, but until you break that hold in your life of having that, you'll be in real trouble. Um, the admonition that's given, I, let me just briefly look at that. Paul kind of spells this out really in a very beautiful passage and we could probably ride a long way on quite a few of these, but, but one of the things that uh, is interesting to me is when he admonishes the rich and tells us, of course, he quotes Job and he also quotes Jesus and uh, bringing us up to speed. But in that last, he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them, and that word charge, it's, it's from a compound word that means to, to have a message, an, a, a, an angelon, a message. We've, you angelon is the gospel message, the good news. Have a message that is parallel and on the side, a meta message. In other words, this is not the gospel. This is a meta message. We know what a meta narrative is. This is a meta message from the Lord with respect to how the rich in this present age charge them, it was give them a meta message not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Notice this, these ideas of setting hopes but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, that they, that is the rich, are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And that word share is the word kononia. That's the holding in common and the things that, that support the body the entire group. That's the word and the process that was going on in, in the early church in the, in the book of Acts. And it was there to, be, there to be ready for that. That should be thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. God's admonishing us to move toward those things and that lifestyle and that viewpoint which we really begin to see the value of real things. We begin to contemplate the eternal and less the temporal. We begin to think more about heaven and less about earth. Now the provision on earth is important and there's a lot of places, the blessing of the Lord and, and uh, the, I am the Lord thy God that gives thee, that has power to give thee wealth. The Lord says that it all derives from him. That'd be another lesson of our biblical economics. And he says here, and I'll just let this be finally. So if you have food and clothing, be content. But those who, listen to this language, desire to be rich. There's the, the ambition of the heart. There's the lust of the heart. There's the lust of the flesh. The, the word desire and lust is the same word in, in, the, in, in the New Testament. There's, there's this, 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 com, this inward compelling to be above all wealthy. You got to get that in perspective. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a stare, into many useless and harmful desires, harmful desires. The desire to be rich and to spend all your time concentrating on this world and how much money you can accumulate and, and possessions and how you can acquire and hoard all of this is a harmful desire. It will do you more harm than good emotionally. It will, in fact, lead to ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root. The love of money. It's not the money. It's the love of the money is the root of all evil things. It is through this craving. This craving. You get the picture? You see what the Lord's trying to root out of our heart is that, is that, is that desire 
that, that, that uh, compulsion, that addiction to the dollar that we all have at, at living in the natural world. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice the, the, the poles that are set for us. It's wandering away from the faith. It's falling into temptation. It's falling into all kinds of bad results and bad outcomes versus what he said in the very last verse as he urged them in this admonition that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's what I'm going to urge for you to do. I'm going to urge for you to take hold to that which is truly life. And when you do that, that money thing will work itself out. It'll work itself out in prayer. It'll work itself out in agony. I don't think I've been sicker to my stomach in anything than when I've made a large offering to somebody. <laughs> and for the next few days, I feel terrible. But the Lord works through it. And you begin to see. And if you ever come to that place where you give out of pure joy, We'll talk a little bit about this next week. Then you know the Lord's beginning to change your eye. He's changing your view. He's changing your perspective. And in the process, he is sanctifying you, cleaning you up, making you holy, giving you a new nature just absolutely more than you'll ever know. Because he's dealing with this root thing that's in our, the warp of our souls. And that's this immense selfishness that causes us to want to to uh, hang on to and acquire more and to never be satisfied with that which we have. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, the Lord said. So um, is that enough for now? Let's come to the table.